And after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation, in every way and everywhere we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem, and they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Now after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you and to make an accusation should they have anything against me. Or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. Other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you today, before you this day. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, When Lysias the tribune comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, Go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus, and desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we know that every good and perfect gift comes from you. And so we approach you now with a true spirit of gratitude and thankfulness. We are thankful for your steadfast love and grace that is not based on our actions or attitudes. We are grateful for all you have done for us, for the ways you have provided for us, and also allowed us to be tools of your provision to others, uh, for the ways you have cared and 
cared for and comforted us, but also for the ways you've used us as a means of consolation for others. We're thankful for the ways you have taught and guided us, but also for how you've allowed us to at times be shepherds to others. Thank you for this uh, message that you will speak to us today through Pastor Cody. And we are grateful that the word of God does, does the, the word of God does the work of God. We are grateful for your word, for the law, for the prophets, for the gospel. Like Paul, we also have a uh, living hope in God that there is a resurrection of the dead. And it's that that we're most thankful. In the name of that living hope, Jesus Christ, we pray to you today. Amen. Well, a number of times a week, I'm in the car with my family and we travel from church here into town and we routinely, as we have to, going down 290, we pass the sheriff's department in the jail that is there and oftentimes there will be prisoners out and working and my children will ask questions and we'll have conversations about why are they there, what did they do, what did they do in there, how did they get in there these type of matters. I've never been behind uh, bars, uh, but I have been in a courtroom. Maybe you have as well. Uh, this passage this morning uh, may be helpful for us to, to go back to that idea of what it was like in a courtroom. Uh, the couple times I've been in there, the one time was the, that was the most serious, there was, uh, I was there to, to help a friend, and I was sitting, and I told my wife later it was just like the movies you know you had some lawyers that were in there with I better not do that some lawyers in there with finely pressed suits mine's not exactly a finely pressed suit so I won't step out and show you my finely pressed suit uh, some lawyers looked more like I looked uh, a little less kept in shoes not polished uh, hair greasy if you don't have as much then it's not as hard to do that you know it, 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 there, there's just, it, was a, it was a whole hodgepodge of people. And there were people that had enjoyed their sin and now found themselves in a room mortified that sin was to be paid. And, and then the, the judge comes in. And if you've ever been in there, the judge, that courtroom is, is his territory. He is the law. And so when he comes in dressed in black and someone says, all rise, nobody stays seated. And everybody rises. When I was there, everybody rose. All be seated, everybody's seated, and somebody's phone went off. And it didn't, it wasn't, oh, hey, George, can you turn your phone off? We've got a few, th no, it was, bailiff, remove his phone. Phone was removed. Nobody sat there and said, hey, well, that's my phone. No, it was law. It was a judge. He was ruling. He was in control. It was a serious matter. What he said goes. And much like what we have in Acts 24, this, this is the closest thing probably in the book of Acts to being in a courtroom, an actual trial for Paul, and here Paul is. And by way of reminder from last week, we are in Caesarea here, and Paul has been placed in 
house arrest or prison, if you will. It happens to be in Herod's Praetorium, which is a palace there on the edge of the Mediterranean Sea. You can still see the ruins. I've been there. To the right, if you're facing the sea, is the Hippodrome, which is where they would have raced chariots. All sorts of things would have happened there. And, that, that it's, and I, when I say to the right, I mean if, if I'm facing the sea right here, the Hippodrome is those back doors. It's right there. The sounds of all that was going on, Caesarea would have filled his ears on a constant daily basis. The ocean right in front of him. Roman guards moving around. And here after five days comes those who had falsely accused him before and now they come down to Caesarea from Jerusalem, Ananias with some elders and they bring with them their lawyer and he's a sleazebag, right? He's a hired gun. He is good with words. He's very good with words. Tertullus is his name. And they laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying. Now, it's interesting what we have here. And if you're looking at your Bible, which I trust you are, if, if you're looking at your Bible just by simple way of working through this whole chapter, it really breaks down very clearly into three different sections. This first section here is verses 1 through 9. And there you've got Tertullus speaking. And he's going to accuse Paul of some things. And then you have Paul's answer, which is really 10 through 21. And then I've got what I've entitled the postlude, which is the, the what happens after, beginning in verse 22. Here, 1 through 9, we have Tertullus that speaks. He's going to accuse Paul, but he begins by unadulterated flattery. Since through you, Governor Felix, you know, you can just hear it just dripping out of his mouth. Most excellent. Reforms are being made for this nation in every way and everywhere. We accept this with all gratitude, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's flattery. And the old phrase, flattery will get you nowhere, is as true as the that same phrase turned on its head. Flattery will get you everywhere. Flattery in order to obtain goodwill from Governor Felix is exactly what Tertullus is doing. He is hoping, by way of his opening statements, to buy some sort of siding to his, his arguments from Felix. It's not unlike what happens in the courtroom today. The lawyer stands up to either make an accusation or to defend his client. And, and he begins with some sort of opening statement, hoping to appeal to the goodwill of the presiding judge taking place here. Same thing. Proverbs 26, 24 through 26 says this about flattery. Whoever hates disguises himself with his lips and harbors deceit in his heart. When he speaks graciously, believe him not, for there are seven abominations in his heart. Though his hatred be covered with deception, his wickedness will be exposed in the assembly. Proverbs 27, verse 6. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. And we could continue to go throughout the book of Proverbs and the rest of the Bible and note the hatred the Bible has for using one's tongue in a way that flatters. Which would beg the question, what is flattery? 
How's flattery different than praise? Flattery is praise. It's a type of praise for the gain of oneself. So if I'm seeking to flatter a person, I'm saying things to build myself up for my own well-doing and my own well-being. And so I'm going to excessively praise that person over the top. In fact, I might even bend or omit the truth as necessary to make sure that they feel good about themselves. That's what, he, that's what he's doing here. Reforms are being made for this nation in every way and everywhere. We accept this with all gratitude. Uh, that actually wasn't the case at all, and we'll see that here in a moment. He's bending the truth. Praise, on the other hand, is the expression of approval, respect, gratefulness for another person. It's marked by truth and it's marked by love. And we aren't actually to go looking for either flattery or praise personally. Proverbs 27 verse 2, let another praise you and not your own mouth, a stranger and not your own lips. So we're not to work for our own praise, we're to work for the praise of and glory of God. And we're to not use our lips to praise another in such a way that would Distract them from the glory of God. Is it wrong for me to look at my wife and praise her for her beauty? Of course not. In fact, C.S. Lewis has written quite a bit on this to help us say to not do that is to not give glory to God. But we're not, I'm not to go to such an excessive length that she thinks not of her beauty as a gift from God, but as something that she has far and above God. And, and we, could, we could go on with examples. I think you get the point. Felix hadn't done anything that Tertullus had actually said. Historians tell us that his leadership was not marked by peace, but it was actually marked by unrest. There's no record of beneficial reforms. In fact, he was recalled to Rome after eight years in Caesarea, not for his beneficial rule, but for his oppressive rule. 52, to six, 52 A.D. to 60 A.D., and then Emperor Nero would recall him. Historians describe Felix as a brutal, incompetent politician. You have to hand it to Tertullus. He, he, he's a man of some courage. He, he knows if he opens with this statement, which is a bald-faced lie, he's either going to get goodwill by the flattery of his lips to Felix or he's going to get Felix looking at him going skip the prelude you know that's wrong tell me exactly why you're here he gets the former notice what Tertullus does he's got three charges at least we could probably boil them down or Increase them if we dug deeper. But there's at least three charges. You see this in, in the beginning here, in verse 5 of his speech. These are trumped up charges. We know this. This is nothing new. We've been down this road. This is a, maybe a new judge, if you will, uh, a new person of authority in which these charges are being given, but they're baseless. Notice the charges. There's at least three of them. Verse 5, For we have found this man a plague, the one who stir up riot, stirs up riots among all the Jews. Uh, some 
translations might render it, render it, we found this man a troublemaker. What is a plague? What is the pestilence? It's, it's that moves around and causes chaos wherever it goes. And that's what they're describing as Paul. Uh, this man is where, walks around, wherever he goes, he just causes problems. He brings pain wherever he moves. That's the first charge. He's a troublemaker. The second charge is also found in verse 5. Note it. He's a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. Well, Christ was a Nazarene, and those who followed Christ were for a time called Nazarenes. He's their leader. And then finally, this last charge, verse 6, he attempted to desecrate the temple. Note, he even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. Notice, it doesn't say if he was actually speaking the truth. It would say something to the effect of, he, even tried to, he didn't try to profane the temple, but we grabbed him and tried to beat the tar out of him. That's the truth. We tried to kill him. But they don't say that. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. And you can imagine the Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. And so here's Tertullus standing and giving his speech, and the Jews behind him, and they're all going, okay, right, here's our part. Nod, mm-hmm, yes, we agree. Notice, though, Paul's answer. This is really the second section here, 10 through 21. When the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, I think it's interesting just to remember what it's like being in a courtroom and the power that the judge has. Uh, we've already seen it before where the judge raises his hand or makes a motion and Paul or others begin speaking. And here, all he's simply doing is turning and nodding his head at Paul and Paul stands to defend himself. Paul is a trained lawyer. And he begins his defense beginning with a much shorter statement, a true statement as compared to Tertullus, knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. That's entirely true. Tertullus, uh, Felix probably would have been in power for five or six years by this time. And Paul is simply stating, I'm glad I have come before someone that has experience. And he begins his defense. Here's charge number one dealt with. You see this in verse 10 and 11. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem and they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. It's not true that I'm a troublemaker. I've only been there 12 days. How could I have incited mass riots against Rome in just 12 days? And in fact, you can go back to Jerusalem or send someone and find the truth. I did not do that. And that was good for Paul to be able to say that. It was good that he had followed the Jerusalem elders and sought to purify himself and to show himself to be a man that approved of the law. He was able to say here, he's got a clear conscience in this. He has not caused any sort of rebellion against Rome, which would not have sat well with Rome. 
Notice the second charge, which was being the ringleader of the Nazarene sect. Uh, He agrees to this one. Notice verse 14. But this I confess to you. Now we've got him, they're thinking. We've got a confession from this man that according to the way, which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. Paul knew well the way. You can remember on his way to Damascus to persecute the way. He had letters. He understood what this way was, which was Jesus was and is the way to the fathers, to the Father. And notice what he's doing, though, here. He's connecting the law and the prophets to the hope of the resurrection of Jesus Christ because they wanted to break it at that point. They wanted the law and the prophets, and then this Jesus was not the Messiah. Paul connects it. Paul recognizes that the law and the prophets culminate in Christ, point to Christ, are different ways to enter in and see the glory of Christ. Growing up in New Braunfels, we had the square, which was not actually a square, but right, you always drove to the square. And what did you do? You drove around the square. I know it blows your mind. How do you drive around a square? But that's what we did. We drove around the square and you would come in, right? There's four or five different ways to come onto the square. That's the law and the prophets. That's Isaiah. That's Jeremiah. That's Psalms. That's 1 Samuel. That's Genesis. Different ways to get to the central matter of the scriptures, which is the glory of Jesus Christ. Paul knows that well. He knows that's why the law and the prophets have been written. If you will, we can turn in our Bibles over to Luke chapter 24. Christ does this exact same thing here. Let's just go there by way of reminder. Christ is on the road to Emmaus following his resurrection. And you can note what he does at the end of Luke 24. He explains how all the law and the prophets point to him. That he is the prophet, that he is the priest, that he is the king, that all of scripture has foretold. Luke 24 verse 25. And he said to them, O foolish ones, And slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. No, that does not mean that Jesus is in every single verse. But that does mean... Wherever we look in the Bible, we can see as we put these verses together that it points to Jesus Christ. It either points forward from the Old Testament or if we're deeper into the New Testament, it points back to the central part of all of redemptive history, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, Paul is making this second defending himself against this second accusation, which is his, he's the ringleader of the Nazarene sect, and he's, he's saying, no, I'm not actually the ringleader, but I am confessing that I'm part of the way. But that the ringleader is Jesus Christ. 
And notice what he says. Verse 16, so I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Now there's, there's a word for a mockery of a court, a kangaroo court, a man who's willing to stand even in the face of death and the power of Rome and make a statement standing for Christ with a clear conscience toward God and man. And if there's anyone in that room that has a bit of a tender conscience left, you know it has to be ringing in their ears. Clear conscience, clear conscience, clear conscience. What about you this morning? Do you have a clear conscience concerning your sin and how to be saved from the payment of death? I didn't ask you if you have a clear conscience from sin. I, I trust that is, I hope and trust that's the case, that as the Lord convicts us of our sin, we repent of our sin. But do you have a clear conscience about what to do about your sin? Some people are troubled in their conscience about, I, I know I have sinned, but I don't have clarity of mind about what I do with that sin. Or if God has declared me to be right before him, through the righteousness of Christ. I'm troubled there. My encouragement to you would be not to depart those doors until you get that troubled conscience salved by the Holy Scripture. And then for, for those of us who are walking in unrepentant sin, you don't have a clear conscience. And may I implore you that how long can you go with an unclear conscience and control the consequences of your sin? That's what we think, right? Well, I'll just wait another day, one more hour, a couple more minutes, a few more months, and then I can work myself out of this. Surely there's something else I can do besides humble myself, repent, confess my sin. And I can control the consequences right now. You don't have control of those consequences. Let's not fool ourselves into thinking that we have control of those consequences. As I, my children and I have talked as we pass that courtroom. Obey the Lord. Follow the scriptures. Do what is right. And you don't have to find yourself sitting in a courtroom thinking, how in the world did I get here? I thought I had it all under control. Notice what Paul then does in the defense of his last accusation here, which by way of reminder is he's attempted to desecrate the temple. Verse 19, no, not at all. 17 through 19 there. And after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult, but some Jews from Asia. They ought to be here before you and to make an accusation. Verse 19, I, I didn't do that as well. You can go back and find the facts. But by the way, those who have accused me of doing that are actually not here. And under the law of Rome, those people were in far greater danger than Paul was. They'd made an accusation and they refused to show up. They're not here at all. And it was all good. They 
were fine with my testimony, those Jews in Asia, until I made this one statement. There was just one thing I said, and then the whole thing came apart. That's verse 21. It is respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. Paul is going to connect here in a moment the idea of resurrection, the hope of resurrection in Jesus Christ, to also the despair of resurrection, that is, that same Jesus Christ coming to judge. He's already hinted at it up at verse 15, resurrection of both the just and the unjust. But here in a few moments, he's going to draw out, specifically for Felix and his wife, the, the idea of the resurrection from the dead being the day that the, those who are unjust those who are not found right before Jesus Christ will be put on a far greater trial than Felix has Paul currently under. We can pause at this moment. And we should pause as we think about what Paul is about to do with Felix and recognize that this phrase, resurrection of the dead, is and has always been a bit of a problem for those who don't want to follow Christ. If there is, which there is, Scripture tells us, and we have the faith to recognize there is resurrection from the dead for the just and the unjust, then one of the prevailing uniquenesses, if you will, of Christianity is the finality and judgment of humanity. We live in a world of second chances. Uh, we live in a world of participation trophies. We live in a world where we think, well, it, it, I paid my dues. It's now fair of you to let me try again. And Christianity says there is a day when there's no more second chances. And when you, when you will stand before the final bar of justice and have to give an answer. And really, the question is, who would want that? Who wants to hear about that? And they reject it then because they have to then deal with the fact that they will have to stand before that bar of justice and they will have to stand before the one who is currently being offered to them, to you, as their Savior. But let's look what Paul does here. This is the postlude, if you will. This is... 22 through the rest of the chapter. Uh, you, you can kind of get the idea what's taking place. Felix has an accurate understanding of the way. He puts off the council, the elders, the spokesmen, Ananias, the high priests. When Lysias, the tribune, comes down, I will decide your case. And then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept, Paul should be kept in custody, but have some liberty and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. And we can know by verse 27 that he's there for two years and his friends would come in and out. But then you, you do have the postlude here. You have what takes place. You have Felix going home and his wife asking him, what'd you do today? And he says, well, I had to hear about this guy from this guy named Paul. And after some days, it seems that she wants to hear as well. 
She's Jewish. They send for Paul. They want to hear him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And notice what he does. He reasoned about three things, righteousness, self-control, and coming judgment. And Felix was alarmed. Now, it's important to note that Felix wasn't alarmed just because Paul said some unique things. This is where the historical context of Felix and Drusilla really plays into helping us understand what's going on in this praetorium. Felix was on his second marriage. Drusilla was a prize to Felix. He was a much older man. History bears out. Drusilla was also on her second marriage. Secular scholars bear out the fact that she had unrivaled beauty. She was quite young. It was a scandalous marriage. It was a tabloid-soaked mess, if you will. Felix had hired a man from Cyprus named Adamus. He was a magician that had helped win or seduce Drusilla away from her first husband. And we find out that in A.D. 79, Drusilla and her son would die, probably in Pompeii, when Mount Vesuvius erupted, volcano, and there she died. So when Paul is standing before them and reasoning about righteousness and right living and the perfection of Christ and of the one who had been sent by God the Father to be the perfect son, the second Adam, the one who had not given in to lust, the one who had not given in to lies and bribes. You can imagine them sitting there and being pierced to the heart over and over again. Paul knows what he's doing here, by the way. He didn't sit there and say, what's my opening line? No, he knows the sins of these two. They're well-known. Well-known across the whole region. People knew about these two. And then when he begins to preach about self-control, and that word has never been in their vocabulary. Jerusalem and Felix have lived a life of lust and passion and greed and selfish ambition. And now Paul is maybe preaching about the fruit of the Spirit and the fact that those who have the Holy Spirit and dwelling in them because of the new birth, because of faith by grace given them in Jesus Christ, now have control, now have that which is giving them the ability to say no to sin and follow Christ. And that's something they haven't thought about. Or maybe they have thought about it and they've wanting to know more about it. And yet Paul is speaking in such a way that obviously alarms them. And then he speaks about the coming judgment, about that one who was nailed on a cross, who was raised from the dead, but who is not walking the shores of the Mediterranean, who is not down in Jerusalem, but has risen, has ascended, and is even coming again. And though this time coming not to bring light to the world, but judgment. And Felix is rightly alarmed. 
Go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. The trial of Paul has at least one similarity to the trial of Christ. There are others, but I want you to notice at least the one similarity I want to draw it here for us, which is in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21 through 23. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to one, to him who judges justly. That verse 23 is the similarity I want to draw out. Paul has every legal piece of ammunition possible to blast his accusers, to call for Rome, to demand that the bar of justice stand up and do the right thing. And Paul doesn't for two years. Think about that. Paul is standing before Felix. He's right in every way. He's a Roman citizen. He has a phrase or two he could utter and he's out. He's gone. He's moving on to Rome, of which he's been promised to go anyway. And he doesn't do it. Paul had more interest in the salvation of Felix and Jerusalem than his own freedom. And that, that's humbling. That, that's us saying, uh, maybe this is a bad analogy. I don't know. You, you, you think it through. You're lying in the hospital bed. You're going to be there for a couple more days. The doctor comes in and says you can get out right now. Experimental drug just came through, works in your case. Take it, you walk home. And someone says, there's that nurse. I wanted to tell her more about Jesus. I'll stay. I'll, I'll take the, another $25,000 of bills. I don't know, you think about it, but that, that, that's, that's what Paul's doing here. I'll take, I'll take two more years in order that these might have Christ preach to them. Felix is looking for padded pockets. He's looking for a bribe and he was well known to be persuaded by one. That's what scripture tells us here. He's hoping that Paul's going to give him money. And Paul probably knew that all he had to do was either say the word and go to Rome or get himself a love offering and he's out. He doesn't do either one. For Paul, every day in every meeting in every circumstance was an opportunity to witness to the grace of God through Jesus Christ to save and the appointment of Jesus to judge those who reject that grace. By way of closing, I wanted to just have us sit on that idea a bit more and think about the fact that here we have Felix and Drusilla coming to Paul and asking him to speak to them and he does just that. You've got another case in Scripture where a man does just that. He goes to Christ. And maybe it's the same passage you're thinking of. I'm thinking of Nicodemus in John chapter 3, verse 9. Turn there, if you will. John chapter 3, verse 9 through 21. We have here in the account of the book of Acts, Felix, who does hear from Paul, but then is alarmed and says, when I get an opportunity, I will summon you. 
And we have in John chapter 3, Nicodemus coming to Christ, talking to him, having a conversation. And we don't hear in John chapter 3, though we do hear later on in the book, of what takes place in Nicodemus's life. But I want to point out for you, starting in verse 9, what is important for us to understand here today about what it means to look to Jesus Christ to be saved from our sin and the opportunity that is before us now that may not be granted down the road. Notice when John, what Christ is saying in John chapter 3 is about Christ on earth and the opportunity that we have even today by extension 2,000 something years later. But he's not speaking about his return to the earth of which we can draw from Acts 24. Look with me at verse 9 of John chapter 3. I'll read the passage, follow along. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and the people love the darkness rather than light because, of their, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clear clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. The light of Jesus Christ has come to the world and he's offered to you today. And now he's also offered to you, though by way of our passage in Acts 24, rightly so, in the face of our sin, he should be offered in a recognition that we should fear. We should fear the coming judgment of God if we are not in Christ. Paul ties the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which is the hope for the Christian. It's also doomsday for the non-Christian because the resurrection of Jesus Christ means the return of Jesus Christ and the judgment of Jesus Christ. Maybe even when Paul was speaking to Felix about coming judgment, he was reflecting upon this courtroom he had been in, this trial he had been under, and pleading even with Felix and Jerusalem to consider that final bar of justice in which they would not be behind the bench but standing before it, reminding them of the way that Christ led the way through death from resurrection all the way even to the skies, that he has provided a way through this life, through death and even the other side in imploring with them to turn to Christ and be saved. 
And I don't know what your coming week looks like. I don't know if you have travels planned or what your work week is going to entail. But brothers and sisters, we should pray and plead with God to send people to us. Like a Felix in a Jerusalem. Uh, the, the, the ones that, frankly, the watching world, knowing them, would have said that they're, they're far removed. And we don't have anything in Scripture that says there, there was any return. Or that there was any opportunity. If there's one thing that we can agree upon in these days of COVID-19, racial tension, political mess, lies, sin, it's that the answer alone is found in Jesus Christ and that the peace we all hope will show up isn't going to, to the degree we would like, on this side of heaven. And that's maybe the most powerful witness we can have is in the midst of unrest and lack of peace is the peace that passes all understanding that allows us as Christians to speak up about Christ in the face of unrest in the face of loss hatred reviling rejection even in the face of possible death it's really probably what makes Paul's situation and others that have come before him that stood for Christ and those who have come after him and stood for Christ. That those who stood for Christ in the face of great adversity are marked as those that have this hope that allows them to recognize that even if they lose that trial, even if they have loss, They've gained. It's the mark of a man who knows this isn't his home. But that this place we call earth is not our final abiding place. There is no abiding place on this side. It's heaven that awaits us. And Paul knows this. His hope is secure. And whether it's two years with Felix or on his way to Rome, he's going to make sure that he lives out the minutes, hours, days, weeks, years ahead of him and being able to proclaim Christ. And may we do the same. May that mark even this week for us. We, we will have opportunity. Let's be bold to step into those. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your kindness and providing us a peace and a hope that supersedes all the pain and difficulty, loss, trial, difficulty on this side of heaven. We thank you, Father, for providing your Son as the way to you, our Heavenly Father, but also as an example of where he looked and what he did, taking on flesh, tempted and tried, giving us the example of, of not perfect men, but of men indwelt with the Holy Spirit that you've given grace to stand strong, men like Paul, what they did, where their hope lay, where our hope lies, Father, I want to pray for those 
who may not like Paul be on trial or standing for Christ, but may be under trials as they have walked, sought to walk out the, their Christian faith and they have maybe family pressing against them, maybe an employer or employee pressing against them and their trial is hard. Father, we pray that you would encourage them of heaven that awaits, of the hope that they have in Christ. Remind them of the opportunity that they have each and every moment to pray, knowing that they do have one who hears and listens. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to study your scriptures this morning. We submit ourselves to your word. What if I've made statements or misled? I trust your spirit to lead according to the word. May it be that which instructs us. May the words of our mouth and the meditation of our heart be acceptable and pleasing in your sight. We pray for our fellowship here in a few minutes. May it be strengthening to our fellowship. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.